the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly briefing on the stories shaping shipping. I'm Richard Meads, the editor of Lloyd's List. Coming up on this week's podcast, the General Data Protection Regulation comes into effect today, introducing much tougher rules on data privacy. We're going to be talking to a leading shipping lawyer about the implications for shipping. We're also going to be finding out why the discovery of three bags of cocaine strapped to the hull of a ship in 2007 has finally resulted in an important ruling from the Supreme Court that has implications for the rest of the industry. But first, a touch of class. A combination of rapidly evolving technologies are converging on shipping, challenging much of the industry's traditional operating models, and with it the role of class. It's no longer sufficient for a classification society to simply ensure that the technology works together the way it's supposed to. They are now simultaneously leading a rapid pace of innovation while balancing the complex questions of how to ensure safety, efficiency and regulatory compliance for an industry in flux. Joining me today to discuss the changing role of class is Nick Brown, Marine and Offshore Director at Lloyd's Register. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks, Richard. Pleasure to be here. So next week, uh, you're going to be out in Posidonia with us at the Lloyd's List Business Briefing, where we're going to be discussing the shifting requirements of an industry dealing with disruption on a number of fronts. Um, The thing that I want to talk about is that for all the pace of uh, accelerated digital change, we still think that efficiency in shipping can't really be reduced to this single silver bullet of technology. So I'm interested, how would you characterize the pace of change in shipping right now? How does that class balance between the sort of technological paradigm shift and the environmental and the social and the economic realities that you deal with? How does that affect what you are doing right now? Well, I think uh, we're, we're obviously seeing two mega trends within the industry at the moment. One, uh, driven by the environmental regulation and the pace that that is driving interest in alternative fuels, slow steaming, new operating models, as you suggested. And also the adoption of uh, greater uh, data analytics, collection of data from the ships, the, the people operating the ships, mm. and the potential impact that that can have on operational um, fuel cost savings on on the way that um, the vessel interacts with uh, the entire supply chain Mm. and the way that um, uh, all parties involved in that supply chain may employ ships in the future. Mm. So you've got a number of megatrends that are effectively driving change. You've got um, the economic reality of uh, an industry that is on thin margins to start with. You've got the social change of um, you know, new talent, digital talent, non-traditional shipping talent coming in. All of that is affecting the industry. But in terms of class, you've got to balance all of those aspects because you are effectively the technological advisor to the industry. How does that affect what you do? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's meant that we have been very active uh, over the last two years working with our clients, with all the stakeholders from the equipment uh, manufacturers through to the designers, ship operators, uh, and indeed charterers to pilot these technologies and for the whole industry to learn uh, through these successful pilots. And I think it's quite similar to the transition that we've already seen with the adoption of LNG as a fuel in niche markets where we were able to take that first principle engineering approach, understand all of the risks, all of the benefits, both environmental safety and efficiency, and uh, successfully uh, uh, support the introduction of LNG-fueled vessels, which were not carrying LNG 
fuel as a cargo into the industry well before we have a, an IGF code. And of course, the lessons learned during uh, those processes and those uh, discussions were very much supportive of the code being written. Mm. I mean, I'm interested in this this regulatory pillar because you know the the, the point we're trying to make with these um, uh, business briefings is that you know you have technological change driving the industry, but without the uh, knowledge of the uh, class and, and and the regulatory uh, environment in within which shipping operates, and without the people to do it. Technology alone can't make those changes, but in terms of how class operates, you know, the speed at which you're actually changing things has rapidly increased. I mean, we, we've spoken before about this, uh, this issue of automation, which obviously has phenomenal implications, but the, the sheer speed at which class is now having to almost get ahead of the technology and the regulatory environment, is that's changing the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um uh, it's probably the, the, the word automation that um, uh, drives a lot of interest. And I think we are getting to the point now where the understanding of automation is not, um, let's say, a direct translation into unmanned vessels. Yeah. We see now that um, there are also great questions around what does automation really mean? And uh, Lloyd Rodister was very active in trying to uh, specify levels of automation which can be built into the whole asset or individual aspects of ships in the future. Uh, and back in 2016 we launched our first um, rules and guidelines to support the industry with the adoption of greater levels of automa automation. That was then of course uh, quickly recognized by the industry and we actually had ships in service as early as 2017. Interestingly, however, the pace has probably picked up even more since that time. And when we launched our second version of our uh, uh, rules around aut autonomous levels uh, during Marintech, December 2017, we then saw as early as January 2018, a vessel delivered adopting those latest guidelines. So the, let's say the privilege we've had in the past of being able to work for years on research and development projects and then, then being launched into the industry and perhaps built into a vessel some years later is now shortening, particularly with uh, the, um, the focus on the digital aspect of the way vessels are operating, to just a matter of weeks. Because there has been concern that, you know, at an IMO level, that the pace of change is not sufficient to keep up with the pace of technological development. But what you're effectively saying is that class and industry are walking ahead of the uh, regulatory environment, but doing so in a way that actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, and I think the regulatory environment that we all work within uh, at IMO does allow uh, equivalence to be sought using um, risk-based approaches. And this is, not again, not, not something new. It's something that we've uh, all, as an industry, flag, class, and uh, operators been working within that framework, uh, as I say, on alternative fuels. But I think it's now spreading to a much wide, wider spectrum of, of uh, the vessel design and the mm. equipment that's installed on board. And just back to that question of automation, I mean, the as you say, we're not talking about unmanned vessels here, but we are seeing a rapid increase in the, uh, the level of automation on board um, ships and and that has already reduced manning levels, but when you look at the combined effect of remote diagnostics, new propulsion technology, even AI coming in, all changing the role of the seafarer as well as the shore-based roles, where do you see the boundaries of safe manning in shipping? Because that is a key question, I think. 
It, it, it is indeed. And I think, um, as you say, technology will surely be a, a main enabler. Um, I think we consider today that primarily those people working on board ships really have two primary roles to carry out. That is to maintain the vessel and, of course, to operate it. But as we get more and more confidence within the industry about the reliability of remote diagnostics, the ability then to trend uh, the performance and the failure modes of equipment on board, the structure on board, and use that uh, in data lakes to pull um, the performance of individual assets against um, the, the, let's say, the entire uh, comparable fleet, I think we will see maintenance being moved much more to a risk-based, data-based regime rather than today's time-based regime or hours-based regime. And I think that would allow the maintenance then to be carried out much more um, in um, planned intervals by specialist uh, either riding crews or, or let's say shutdown periods, dry docking periods, in the same way that other major infrastructure assets are operated, such as refineries, mm. uh, power plants, etc. So again, we're back to this issue of technology leading the change, but effectively having to re almost retrofit the uh, environment within which it is maintained, operated, regulated, and have the right people to be able to do that. So. The point here is that you know you cannot move ahead with technology in isolation. You have to walk in tandem with the social, uh, environmental, and technical aspects of it in order for this to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, we think that uh, you know the potential move away from residual fuel or heavy fuel oil could well be an enabler. We see more uh, adoption of cleaner fuels, uh, less need for purifier operations, dealing with sludge. Uh, move maybe perhaps more to more hybrid and large battery installations, then many of those, let's say, daily cleaning maintenance tasks should uh, reduce and, and allow us to um, to then take the necessary steps around manning levels on board. Well, there you go. For all the ship owners currently struggling with the 2020 regulations coming their way, at least there's a bright future on the horizon for them. Um, Nick Brown, thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to uh, continuing the discussion out in Posidonia when we uh, see you at the business briefing on June the 3rd. As anyone who has taken even a parting glance at their clutter boxes recently will know, today is GDPR Day. Companies worldwide have been scrabbling to prepare for the general data protection regulation enforced by the EU. And shipping, like everyone else, now faces much tougher rules on data privacy. Among the new rules, companies must reveal data breaches to regulators within 72 hours, tell users how their information is being used, and provide stored personal data to users on request. Joining me to discuss the implications for shipping is Philippe Rutley, Head of EU and Competition Law at the international law firm Insenco. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, other than reduced spam in our inboxes, what are the broad implications for shipping in this brave new world of transparency for all? Well, the GDPR is not a system that applies specifically to shipping. It applies to all companies trading and marketing within the EU. Uh, it's a response to a growing public concern at the way personal data is being harvested and used for commercial purposes, often without the person involved realizing that this is happening. 
And data law goes back to the 1990s. Since then, technology has vastly improved, and the way of processing data has also improved and, and beyond recognition. So in 2016, the EU adopted a new set of legal rules for data, which came into force on the stroke of midnight this morning. And it will create a much tougher data environment. Uh, and the key to the whole system is strengthening the control the individual has over his or her data, his personal data. And the other key issue is that consent must be obtained by, from the individual to process the data. Okay. So obviously this is not a shipping-specific piece of legislation, but what do shipping companies have to do to comply? Well, they have to, uh, when selling goods or services uh, inside the EU, they have to make certain that the customer... Uh, or the employee or the business contract uh, understands the way their personal data is being collected and processed. Remember, the GDPR is about personal data. Uh, that's your name, your address, your, your bank details. Mm. It could be your preferences in terms of uh, marketing choices or buying choices. And also, um, where you have uh, sensitive data, as the regulation calls it, uh, such as health information, do you need a wheelchair, are you diabetic, and similar sensitive issues. And that is the data being collected and processed by companies. Mm. either through for their employees who are based in the EU or for their customers or their contractors. And for that, there's a whole series of things which shipping companies must do. So they're going to have to employ some sort of internal organisational measure to, to, to make this sort of compliant? What, what, what does it practically mean? Yeah, for the first thing you need to do is to have a privacy policy, your own notice to the public on how you handle the data. Then there's also cookies. Everyone on their websites nowadays has cookies which are used to identify the visitor to the website, to record preferences, and to collect data about the person uh, using the website. Hmm. Uh, the first thing that must be done is the companies must do a data audit, as we call it. They need to know what is the data they have, what are they collecting, uh, why are they collecting it? Is it because they're an employer or they're marketing or fulfilling a contract? Then they have to process to know why they're processing the data and where is it being processed and is it securely processed? So all these measures have to be taken. Yeah. Then you also have to know how you store the data and for how long do you keep it and where do you keep it? Once you've done all that, you have to take internal measures to uh, put... Um, the data or to use the data securely. So you have to have a secure cyber policy because make certain that your systems are secure, that they can't be hacked and that they are stored securely. You should also, if you're not an EU company, appoint an EU representative, someone established in the EU to represent you. Uh, there's also uh, the need, if you process a lot of data, and this is important for large companies, to appoint a so-called data protection officer, a DPO, who is the internal head of compliance, um, who has to know about data. It can be someone in-house, it can be a contractor as well. And then you must ensure, and that's very important, that your employees and your customers are notified of your data policy. So you have to notify them of your privacy policy. When they go on your website, the cookie should have a pop-up box which explains what is being collected and referred to the privacy policy. And then, also importantly, you have to create an internal system 
to deal with any possible breaches, and also data requests, because the individual is entitled at all times to request to know what data you hold about them, and also to correct the data if it's inaccurate, for example, if they change their name. And you mentioned this a couple of times in terms of where the data is handled. Obviously, this is an EU regulation. Shipping, by its very nature, is international. Are there any wrinkles there in terms of data being collected within the EU and then being transferred out of the EU? That's a very important question. I think it applies to a lot of non-EU companies who collect data, personal data, inside the EU and then transfer it outside the EU. You, under the regulation, transfers from the EU of data outside the EU is not allowed unless certain conditions are satisfied. The first one is where the EU has investigated and uh, assessed the data laws of the other country and uh, deemed them to be adequate for the protection of individuals. So they create, they adopt things called adequacy decisions and several countries are now uh, beneficiaries of an adequacy decision like Australia, New Zealand, the Isle of Man and so on. Or there can be a treaty, there's a treaty between the US and the EU on data protection. Uh, Japan and South Korea currently don't have an adequacy decision, but they're negotiating with the EU and it's expected they'll have that by the end of 2018. But if you don't have uh, a, an adequacy decision or a treaty, then the most common way of dealing with the issue, for example, if you're transferring data for processing in India, is to adopt so-called binding corporate rules, or BCRs. And that's an in-house code of conduct for the company to, uh, express, to explain how they will handle data, how they will process it. And those uh, binding corporate rules should be approved by an EU regular, uh, regulator, and there's one for each member state. And interestingly enough, if you look on the Commission website, in the shipping industry to, de to date, only Maersk and CMACGM have had approved binding corporate rules. It does take a long time. The UK Information Commissioner's Office is one of the quickest of the regulatory institutions for dealing with this, and they take 12 months, but other countries in the EU can take up to two years. So even if you apply for your internal code of conduct or data to be cleared by regulators, it could take you until the end of 2019, if not beyond, to get approval. Mm. And finally, I mean, I think a lot of the discussion around GDPR is focused on, you know, the what-if scenarios. What if there is a data breach? And obviously, mines were focused in the wake of uh, the Maersk breach that cost them a pretty penny in terms of dealing with that. I mean, now that the regulations are there, what are the implications? This is a, this is a regulation with teeth. I mean, the fines are significant if you are found to be breaching these things. Indeed. I mean, you, uh, firstly, companies have had since May 2016 to get their house in order. A lot of people have uh, started doing so, if I may say so, in earnest in the last few months. Um, clearly, if there's a serious breach after today, there will be little sympathy from the regulators and the fines could be very large. I mean, if there's a serious breach, like selling individual data without consent of the individuals, you could find, face a fine of 4% of your global turnover or 20 million euros, whichever is a greater. A lesser breach, for example, failing to appoint a data protection officer could lead to a fine of 20 million euros or 2% of your global turnover. And every member state, as I said, has a data 
Protection Authority, for example, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK. Now, companies should select a, an, an authority to register with and contact them for compliance purposes. But the ICO has gone out of its way to say they're not here to punish, they're here to help guide companies towards a new way of dealing with data, a new mature, modern online environment which is secure. So as the Information Commissioner herself said on in, in their, uh, their, their podcast on this, they said that they're more interested in the carrot than the stick. But obviously serious deliberate breaches would be punished very severely. But the option for shipping companies who are not yet compliant is to perform a data audit and to, get, to take the necessary measures. Well, carrots obviously welcome, but uh, fines of up to 4% of annual turnover is uh, probably going to be enough to focus the minds of most shipping companies, yep. I would argue. Um, Philip, listen, thank you very much for coming in. It's been an illuminating discussion. Thank you very much. And finally, I'm joined once again by our law and insurance expert, David Osler. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave. Morning, Richard. So, Dave, there's been a rather counterintuitive ruling on the uh, shipping case in the Supreme Court this week, hasn't there? That's right, Richard. It turns out that cocaine smuggling is not a malicious act. It may be illegal, it may be unethical, it may result in a vast body count across multiple Latin American countries for the benefit of advertising executives and investment bankers in the first world, but it's not a malicious act in terms of shipping and insurance law, and that's official. Drug smuggling, war risk, this is right in your uh, favourite topic zone. Uh, give us some uh, fundamentals of the case. What's actually happened here? This relates to the case of a vessel called Bee Atlantic, a bulk carrier that called at a Venezuelan port in 2007. And on inspection, um, a frogman found that there were several bags of cocaine strapped to its hull. No suggestion of complicity from the company, of course, but the vessel was detained for customs infringement. And after six months, the owner thought that he had a claim for constructive total loss. This was contested by the insurers, navigators in this case. Um, so it became a, um, a catch-22 situation under the war risk rules, basically. Um, malicious acts are an insured peril, but customs infringement are not. So which takes priority? This case made its way up through the London court system. At first instance, it was ruled that it was a malicious act and that the insurers should pay. That was overturned on appeal, and now it's finally been settled in the Supreme Court. It isn't. Or rather, um, the customs infringement stands. That's that's the key thing here. Mm. And obviously, I mean, apart from the sort of headline-grabbing sort of nature of the case with drug smuggling and uh, you know, war risk and people sort of obviously paying attention because it's quite an eye-catching case, the fact that this has been going up through the courts and now to the Supreme Court, that has really grabbed everybody's attention because there are implications here, aren't there? That's right. I think the key takeaway for owners is drug smuggling risks are not covered by war risk insurance. That's very clear now. Um, if you are trading with the kinds of countries where that is a big issue and you think you need that kind of cover, then you should go and buy that cover separately. It is available in the market at reasonable prices, I'm told. But don't be complacent. Don't think you're covered just because you take out war risk.
Fair enough. Another risk for ship owners to be concerned about. Dave, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Before we go, a quick reminder to all of you filling in your Posidonia diaries. Lloyd's List is hosting a business briefing on June the 3rd at the Divani Apollon Hotel. Demand for spaces is high, but there are a few spaces left for you to register now at lloydslist.com. On the panel, we've got Nick Brown, who you heard from earlier, uh, Frank Coles, president of uh, Transess Group, part of uh, the Barzilla Voyage Solutions Group, uh, Alex Panagopoulos, chairman and founder of Forward Ships, uh, John Platsidakis, chairman of Intercargo, and me. Um, we're going to be back again next Friday with another slice of the stories shaping shipping. And if the IT gods are smiling us, we should be coming to you live from Athens the following week from Posidonia. Until then, I wish you all a prosperous week. Goodbye.